So we're, we're preseason. We're leading up to our fall growth campaign. If you were around here last year, um, I, I, uh, we did this. We did one last year called Be the Message. What it is is um, we encourage at this time of the year, getting started again, summer's over, it's time for things to start. And so as a church, we have our own little process where we're, we're uh, encouraging everybody to do a couple things. One is to get in a life group. Uh, life groups are uh, really the heartbeat of our church. We have rows, which uh, happen on the weekends, Saturday night service, Sunday mornings. We meet in rows, and we learn, and we worship, and we believe that's really important and biblical to do. But we also have circles, and circles are small groups. They're a time where we can sit down with others who are trying to follow Jesus and who are trying to grow, and we can build relationships and be encouraged in our walk. And we know from the scriptures that that fellowship with other Christians is absolutely essential to us growing. Last week when we started this preseason, our pre-campaign, I mentioned last week that Jesus' goal for you and for our church, and so my goal for you and for our church, is not just that you'd be comfortable, but it is that you would grow. And sometimes comfortable is nice and it's not uh, all bad, but sometimes it can stop us from growing. Because in order to grow, uh, oftentimes we've got to take a step out of the comfortable into the uncomfortable. And so we looked at that last week. If you missed the message last week, you might go check it out on our website. But, um, but that's the truth. And so we want to have, I want to encourage you guys to get into these circles so that through our fall campaign, which will start the first weekend of October, that week will start, that you can get the most out of it. You know, uh, it's been said, and I, I had a leader that I worked under for a few years that taught me this, that always would say that high commitment equals high growth. The more you commit, the more you're going to get out of it. And so uh, for those of you that aren't in a life group and maybe you haven't been here at Mitchell Brian, um, I know it's, it's a little bit of an ask. It's like a little commitment. I mean, I got to take out some time from my week and I know that, but I want to encourage you and pretty much, I can't guarantee it, but I can come very close to guaranteeing that if you take that step, you're going to experience more growth. You're going to get more out of uh, your walk with Jesus. It's going to enhance uh, your relationship with God. And so that's just how it works. Um, I know some of you may have said, man, I, I got a bad experience or I tried that and it didn't work. And, oh, pastor, you don't know what happened. And people are uh, judgmental. And I mean, there's all kinds of things I've heard as to reasons. I just want to encourage you that that's the past. And sometimes the past can keep us from moving forward, even though the future can be very different than the past, right? And so I just want to encourage you with that, that uh, there's a future that God has for you. Don't get stuck in the past uh, because that can just be a hang up. Uh, really, maybe it's a year for you to try again. And so if, as you leave the service back in this corner by the connections table, we got a bunch of tables set up with life groups that have uh, room in them. They meet different nights of the week, different days, different times, but we're all going to be going through this campaign together and we're going to grow together. Last year, we did a campaign called Be the Message, and it was about living out the gospel in the world around us, how we are called to be uh, ambassadors for Jesus and show others who Jesus is by the way we live our lives and the things that we say. This year, we're notching it up a little bit, and we're calling the series Be a Disciple. Be a Disciple. The truth is that this church, the leadership of this church, recognized the need for a focus on discipleship. 
years ago. And so there's been, a, a te- you know, working towards that, and there's been work done on that. And so, um, you know, when I came here, it was with the idea of being a discipleship and outreach pastor. And then, of course, uh, God had different, different ideas, but we, we recognize the need is still there. So the leadership of the church and, and uh, the team has tried to, you know, we've worked on this and, and, and sought God on what he's doing, and we just see him moving in this direction. Uh, I had a group of about 15 leaders that we went through um, kind of our, um, our vision or our overview that we're going to adopt as a church. We went through it this summer, and I asked that group at the beginning, about 15 people, how many of you have been discipled by somebody? And there was a one or two that said they had been through some kind of a one-on-one or in a group process that was intentional. And we just thought, I just thought, man, in five to ten years, prayerfully, how cool would it be is if I asked any group of 15 in this church that most of you would raise your hand and say, yeah, I've been discipled. Because the truth is, Jesus calls us into a relationship with him that leads to a process of growth. It is not just about uh, trusting him as Savior, but there really is more to the Christian life that God has for you. Um, we're following a model, kind of a vision of discipleship that is, uh, has a metaphor to it that is uh, called four chairs. And the four chairs represent the four different calls of Jesus into different uh, arenas of growth. And so we've got four chairs here up on the stage that kind of represent that. The first chair is called come and see. Jesus, when he first was calling his disciples, he said, come and see, come and check out what God's doing. And so they came. Uh, Some of them brought somebody with them, and that's why we got two chairs there. Bring somebody with you to check out what God's doing. What, What is he doing? And then the second chair is when Jesus said, come and follow me. And that's moving from somebody that's checking out Jesus to trust in him as Savior. And recognizing that when he died on the cross to pay the penalty for sins, that he died for your sins and that you need the forgiveness and grace and mercy of God. And so the Bible says, if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we'll be saved. And so we trust him as Savior. We say, Jesus, I'm, I, I'm put my faith in you, right? And that's the second chair. And uh, that's why we got some camping gear there. Come and follow. Like it, it means get up and move. And then the third chair is represented by uh, when Jesus said to Peter, come and follow me and I'll teach you to fish for men. And that's represented by that moving into that arena of, of serving and helping to do the work of God and being involved in the ministry that God's doing. And that, that is a, represented in your local church, Mitchell Breen. It's also represented in the world around you, where you work, where you live, where you play. We talked about that last year. And so that's the third chair. That's a big shift of getting involved. That is a little riskier. We see a lot of people move into chair two and then have trouble getting into chair three or maybe take a step into chair three and go, uh, you know, that was scary, like something, you know. And so uh, that can be a tough one, but so important. You got to grow into that where you're embracing and being involved in the mission and work of God. And then the fourth chair is called uh, Go and Bear Fruit, John 15. Uh, We talked about that a couple weeks ago where Jesus said, uh, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Remain in me and you will bear much fruit. And so we recognize that we're called to bear fruit as Christians. This is what our life is supposed to do. It's supposed to be productive and produce. And the fruit we're talking about in this discipleship vision is a reproduction of making other disciples. 
And so the ultimate, if you will, destination for you as a Christian, and you can know this, it's why we're doing this, so you know what's supposed to happen in your life. What is it that Jesus is calling you to? What is it that you're supposed to grow into? Is that you're to grow to a place where you are reproducing, you're investing in the lives of others, and you're teaching them what you've learned. And we want to talk about that today. Because this process of moving into ministry, you know, Jesus, when he walked the earth, uh, he lived out or modeled a way to, um, to make a difference, to reach others, to do what he's called us to do. In Matthew 28, Jesus said, go into all the world and make disciples. And so that's what we're supposed to be doing as a church, as individuals. That's what we're supposed to be about. And yet uh, there's some hangups to doing that. We look at Jesus' life and we see that he did it. Jesus invested in the lives of a few, and those few, when he left, they were scared. They were hiding out in an upper room, terrified of the Jewish leaders, the Roman leaders. Uh, they, they didn't know what was going to happen. And all of a sudden, uh, an event occurred, day of Pentecost, Holy Spirit came, fell on them, and they went out with confidence and power and changed the world, took the gospel, the good news of the resurrection of Jesus. They took it around the world within a short period of time. And so uh, we want to look at that and say, listen, uh, Jesus was able to accomplish something with his life and ministry. He's encouraged us to do the same thing. Can we do that? How, what would that look like? Um, I want to ask a question to you this morning. What is the biggest and most audacious claim or prediction that you've ever heard? The most audacious. <clears throat> um, I was born in 1970, and so I know I'm old, but uh, I think of a story, an example of this, that goes back actually a year before I was born. But I heard about this story because of my love and interest in sports when I was a kid. You know, I've I followed uh, uh, NFL football, you know, and baseball, and I got into those things, collected cards, and I read books on this stuff. And I remember reading about a story of a situation that happened in 1969 in, in what was known, uh, what's known as the NFL. Um, there was, uh, the football league had existed for many years, but they created this championship, right? Championship game. And uh, the, this was the third year, I think, that they'd had this championship game. Up to this point, they had not called it the Super Bowl. But in this year, 1969, if I got my history right, it's the first year they called it the Super Bowl, but they called it Super Bowl three because they'd already had a couple years of championships. But they made this shift and adjustment. And there were some key teams in the NFL at that time, powerhouses. Green Bay Packers, I think, had won all the Super Bowls up to that point. And then you had the Baltimore Colts. And the Baltimore Col Colts in 1969 were the strongest team. They had the strongest, uh, most powerful lineup, most experienced. And everyone looked at them and said, these guys are going to win. They're going to take it all. And as the season progressed, they had a tremendous year, powerful year. And they were just uh, favored. They were seen as the favorites that year. Well, there was another team that came out of a lesser known league called the AFL, American Football League, kind of seen as the JVs. You know, they weren't really respected that much. They didn't have the same kind of talent and ability that the NFL had uh, in their pool. And this team was the New York Jets. And the New York Jets, uh, though they were in New York, big city, again, they came out of the AFL, and so they just weren't that powerful. Nobody really thought they could accomplish that much. Yet they had a great season, and in 1969, it was the New York Jets and the Baltimore Colts that were going to play in the first named Super Bowl. The New York Jets were, uh, it was a 7-1 to favorite that the, Bolts, uh, the, the Colts would win. There was the thought, the predictions were that the Colts would win by 18, 17, 18 points, 
And this was before the days of the, you know, the, the passing and quick attack and, and high score and football games. And so that was a huge spread. And uh, the belief was just that the Colts were going to pound the Jets. The Jets had kind of a, a young and upcoming uh, quarterback. And, uh, and he was known um, as Broadway Joe. His name was Joe Namath, right? And so he's kind of a good-looking young guy. And he was, he was kind of brash. And he was out there in the public eye, you know. Um, and so uh, he got, uh, somebody set him down for an interview. And he made an audacious prediction. He said that the New York Jets were going to win the Super Bowl. He said, we're going to win. And of course, nobody believed him and everybody scoffed at what he said. And they're like, there's no way you guys can win. It's impossible. Uh, you know, you're not good enough. You don't have the talent. Well, uh, the day of the big game came and Joe Namath put in an MVP performance and they won the game in spite of all odds. And so his audacious prediction came true. Jesus also makes an audacious prediction in the New Testament. He says something that is unbelievable, unbelievable in many ways. This is what he says in John 14, starting verse 12. He said, I tell you the truth. Anyone who believes in me will do the same works I have done and even greater works because I'm going to the Father. You can ask for anything in my name and I will do it so that the Son can bring glory to the Father. Yes, ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. Let's pray. God, I pray uh, as we engage uh, this idea of serving in your kingdom, serving as a part of your movement and, and seeking to be obedient to you, uh, to the task and the call and the command and the, the commission that you've given us. Father, I just pray you'd speak into us regarding the power that's available. As you call us, Father, you also empower us. And so, Father, I pray that you'd speak to us, encourage our hearts, help us to look at a new way at the calling that you've given us to be a part of your work. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Jesus gave the command to his disciples to go and make disciples. That command continues down to us today. He followed a process. And this four-chair model, vision, whatever, reflects a study of that process, of that model of ministry that Jesus followed. Um, if I told you that by investing in a few people, in your workplace, in your, uh, in your neighborhood, in your family, by investing in the lives of a few, within a few years, if you pour into them and you teach them how to follow Jesus, that in, in a couple of years, you could begin something that would change this community forever, that would impact this region, that you would see a movement grow and spread that would, would impact the lives of many if you followed this model, would you believe that that's possible? You know, I mean, honestly, a lot of us uh, who have maybe been following Jesus for a while and even involved in church ministry would say, Pastor, we, you know, that just doesn't work that way. I mean, that's great that you're all excited about what Jesus did. And, and you know, that's awesome that you want to tell us it could happen today. But, but we just haven't seen that. I mean, that, that's just not how it works. And so we can get in that little bit of a cynical mindset or, you know, one of just saying we haven't seen it happen before. Yet I want to suggest to you today that it can happen and that Jesus really does call us to this and that he promises to empower us to do this very thing. Um, part of the problem of following Jesus' example in, in the New Testament and believing his claim is that too often I hear this excuse. I can't do that, Pastor. We can't do what Jesus did because he's God. It's not really fair. Jesus did what he did 
He was able to uh, follow this ministry model of investing in people and, and seeing them grab a hold of that, that calling and that mission and, and take it because he was God. It's unfair. You can't really ask me uh, and expect me to be able to do what Jesus did. Well, the truth is that Jesus had two natures. He did have two natures. Um, he was, first of all, he was fully God. We look in uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, and there's a brief description. It says this, in the beginning was the Word. The Word there is, is talking about Jesus. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so there is the claim and the, the, the description of Jesus in the New Testament that he was God. Divinity, he was divine. That, he, that was his nature. Jesus said in John 10 30, the Father and I are one. Claiming uh, perfect unity and identity that equal to the Father. Well, that's a claim to divinity. Jesus was saying, I am God. And, and he made that claim. And the Jews who uh, were around in the day certainly knew Jesus was making that claim. He wasn't just saying, I'm a man. He was doing things that only God can do. You'll remember that when we look at Jesus' interaction with people in the New Testament, one of the things when they come to him for healing, they come to him for help with, with a, an issue, first off, one of the things he does almost every time is he forgives their sins. Well, listen, that is absolute blasphemy for a man to forgive another man's sins. You do not have the power to do it. Uh, I, you know, the only way sins can be forgiven is by God, someone who's able to forgive those. And so Jesus was doing things that only God can do. And so most Christians anyway, that have moved into this second chair of saying, I'm going to follow Jesus. There is the belief and agreement that Jesus is God, but Jesus also had another nature. He was also fully man, 100% human. John 1.14 goes on to say, So the Word became human and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. In, this, uh, in these verses, an acknowledgement that Jesus was God, but that he became human. He was a real human being. Jesus was born into a real body. He felt pain, both physically, emotionally. Jesus was tempted. Uh, the Bible tells us in the Old Testament that God cannot be tempted to sin. It is outside of his nature. It's impossible for him to be tempted to go against his own character. Okay? That's an impossibility. Yet Jesus, the New Testament tells us, was tempted. And some people say, well, that wasn't a real temptation because Jesus couldn't have sinned because he's God. And I want to suggest to you and argue a little bit that it's impossible for it to be a temptation if Jesus wasn't able to be tempted to do the thing he was being tempted to do. If it wasn't possible for him to do it, how's it a real temptation? And so I know theologians, pastors, people have argued these points for years. I'm not going to solve it today, but I am going to suggest to you that those are real temptations. We're going to look at it in a minute. Uh, the temptation he experienced by the devil. It was real. It was real. His human nature, his humanity made it possible for him to feel the pull of temptation. How was it possible for Jesus to be fully God and fully man? This is an audacious claim. How is it possible? Well, the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote these words in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 and 8, or 6 through 8. He said this, though he was God, 
He did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. So Jesus put aside some of his attributes, his his divine attributes. For instance, we know the Bible teaches us that God is omnipresent, meaning all present all the time. God is spirit. And so his presence is everywhere all the time. And yet Jesus came into a human body, giving up that divine attribute. No longer was Jesus omnipresent, right? Um, And so Jesus, uh, Jesus walked in trueness as a human being. He did not have a sin nature, and so his struggles with temptation were a little different because he didn't have a sin nature. So his father was not a human being, right? He didn't have a son of Adam as his dad. The Holy Spirit uh, put him in Mary's womb. And so, uh, uh, so we know that's different about him, and that is a distinction, that he didn't have a sin nature, a predisposition to sin. Those of us born as human beings, uh, and we're not divine, we have a predisposition to sin because of uh, Adam and Eve and their sin that is systemic. It entered the human race. And so we have this propensity to go against God's standards. But Jesus didn't have that. But aside from that, he was a human being, and he did wrestle, truly wrestle with sin and the temptation to do it. It is true that Jesus did not have a sin nature like we do, and so he did not sin. But Jesus did not lean on his divine nature to successfully live out his humanity. Jesus didn't cheat. He didn't use his God divinity uh, abilities and power to successfully live out a human life and accomplish the mission that God the Father gave him to do. Hebrews 4, verses 14 through 16 says this, So then, since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours understands our weakness, listen, for he faced all the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. The writer Hebrews saying again, Jesus was a real human and he faced the struggles that we face. He understands what it's like to have the pull of temptation, to have the the pain of the effects of sin. He felt some of those things. Jesus did experience real temptation. In uh, Matthew 4, we hear of the three temptations that Jesus underwent. Uh, most of, I think all the Gospels, or three of them anyway, give this account of Jesus' baptism. After his baptism, he went into the wilderness for 40 days, and he did not eat for 40 days. And so at the end of that, the Bible says he was hungry, uh, which is probably a little bit of an understatement, more like he was starving, right? And so it was at that time, in a weakened physical state that he faced the devil's temptations. The devil came to him and gave him these three temptations. The first, he said, uh, he said, Jesus, you are God. You're hungry. You could simply speak to these stones that are surrounding you, these rocks. You could speak to them and turn them into bread, and then you can eat and stave off your hunger. Jesus, do that. And of course, Jesus said, no, man doesn't live by bread alone. And so he rebuked it, or rebuked it. Second temptation, uh, the devil said, listen, Jesus, you could get up on the pinnacle of the temple, one of the highest spots in the city, throw yourself off, make a spectacle of yourself, 
Throw yourself down from the temple. He said, God's word says that God is not going to let your, uh, your toe to be stubbed. And so he's going to send his angels to catch you. He goes, you could do a spectacle here and everyone's going to know who you are. Right now, people don't respect you, Jesus. They don't know who you are. You're living a humble existence here, though you're the son of God. You speak and you teach and some people scoff at you. They don't give you the respect you deserve. They don't know who you are. You could cheat, right? You could do something fantastical here and it would be a demonstration of who you are and everybody would know. And then the last temptation, and Jesus, of course, said no to that. And then the last temptation was to bow down and worship Satan. He said, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. You can bypass what you're going to have to go through, the, the suffering. Well, listen, at least two of those, maybe all three, were a temptation, if you think about it, big picture here, a temptation to use his divine power to gain something towards his mission, to meet a physical need. It was a temptation. It was a temptation to cheat, to use his God power to do something, to solve a problem or to give himself an advantage. And as I look at those and think about them, he didn't do it. He said no to all of those. Now, part of it was because the devil was tempting him, but what was the core of the temptation? I think it plays into this. Jesus was not going to use his divine power just to gain an advantage to get done what God had called him to do. He was going to submit his divine power to the will of God. And so the things that he did were in conjunction with what God the Father wanted him to do. But you say, well, Jesus performed miracles. He raised the dead. That's, that's superpower. Everyone can't do that. Well, hold on a minute. His disciples did all of those things after Jesus left, right? We have an account that they didn't do it. And Jesus, the Holy Spirit was a part of that process. God the Father was a part of that process of those miracles. I think it's evidence of that. So again, uh, what I'm trying to say here is that we, we oftentimes say, I can't do what Jesus did. We, 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 we make this uh, reasoning in our minds that it's, un, it's unreasonable to expect that we could do what Jesus did, and that certainly is connected to what he's called us to do. And so we settle for less than really going after the mission that he's called us to. We settle for less than because we say, I can't do it. Jesus did it. It's different today. And I just want to, I'm suggesting to us that's not the case that we can do it. We've been called to do it. We have the power to do it. The truth is that Jesus calls you and I to the same work that he did. He promises us, listen, the same power. The only way this is possible is if the resources available to Jesus are also available to you and I. That's the only way this is possible. And the audacious claim of Jesus that his disciples, that includes you and me, are going to do greater things than he did the same kinds of things that he did. I want to suggest to you, <laughs> the only way that's possible is if we have the same resources he did available to us. Jesus is your example for life and ministry. You are uh, called to make disciples. Are you making disciples? Are you making disciples with your life? Are you reproducing? Have you moved and progressed through these chairs? Have you gotten to that place where you're investing in others and you're teaching others and so you're seeing reproduction? You're doing what Jesus called us to do. Oftentimes in my role as a pastor, I interact with people and along with this excuse, I hear other reasonings why they just simply cannot do this. And oftentimes what I hear at the core is, pastor, I can't do that. You don't know. I'm not that kind of person. I'm not a spiritually powerful person. I'm not a leader. I'm not gifted. 
I'm not anybody special. And so to expect me to be able to do these things, Pastor, I just can't. It's just not there. And to that, I get a little upset, to be honest with you, because that's a lie of the enemy. It's not true. It is not true. (laughs) Emphatically, it's not true. You've been called into a movement that is reproduction. At the core of it is reproduction. And if you could not reproduce, if you could not make a disciple, if you could not invest in someone else, then Jesus wouldn't have asked you to do it. My question is, are we tapping into the same power, the same resources Jesus had? So I just want to look at this real quick. What were the resources that Jesus had available? The first one is the Holy Spirit. Jesus' life, his existence on this earth, from inception to resurrection, was saturated with the Holy Spirit. Luke 4, uh, Luke's account of of the temptations of Jesus. He says this, uh, Luke 4, verse 1, Then Jesus, this is after his baptism, Then Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, and he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. He was following the Holy Spirit. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. You and I are also filled with the Holy Spirit. When we put our trust in Jesus, when we move into chair two, the promise is by God that the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in our lives and to fill us and to gift us and empower us. Jeremy Camp has a song. I love the line of it. Uh, One of the key lines says, the same power that rose Jesus from the grave lives in us. Prayer is the second resource Jesus had available to him. Prayer. More than 40 times, the scriptures tell us that Jesus withdrew to pray. Luke 5, 16, but Jesus often withdrew to the wilderness for prayer. Jesus kept a constant connection, communication connection with his father. You and I have the same ability to stay connected to the father, to sense his direction, to hear from him, to interact with him. We have that same ability to connect. Too often, though, we see prayer like the old fisherman that was out to sea with his pagan buddies and none of them believed in God, none of them followed God, but he kind of had. And they got into a storm and it was bad and they were worried about their lives. And so his buddies are like, hey, dude, you got to pray for us. Please pray for us that God would settle the storm, save our lives. He goes, guys, I haven't prayed in years. I don't go to church. I mean, come on, don't ask me to do this. They kept pressing him. You're the only one that could do it. You at least have a relationship with God of some kind. Please pray for us. Well, finally, he got down on his knees in the boat and he lifted his hands. He said, Lord, I haven't talked to you for 15 years, but I'll make you this deal. If you would come in and save us in this storm and this, uh, save our lives, I promise I won't bug you for another 15. Sometimes we look at it that way. It's like uh, I'm bugging God or, you know, I'm going, I don't know. We see it as an imposition or, or we see it somehow as a negative. And the truth is that we have a father who wants to hear from us. He wants to interact with us. He actually is longing for us to come to him. He's absolutely available all the time. He is omnipresent, right? He is all-powerful. He is holy God, creator of the universe, and he made you, and he loves you, and he shouldn't want to interact with us, but he does. It's at the core of who he is. Prayer. Jesus had that resource. He utilized it. Are you, am I using that resource to do the ministry and do the work God's called us to? Jesus also had the word of God. He had the scriptures available to him. The Old Testament, Jesus studied uh, when he went to the temple to be uh, for his uh, testing, sort of his coming of age, uh, you know, uh, ceremony. 
he was uh, tested by the priests. The Bible tells us that he hung out there. He did so well that he stayed in the temple. His parents left to go back home. Jesus was in the temple talking to the priests, and he was, they marveled at his grasp of the scriptures. Jesus didn't cheat uh, as God. Oh, he just knew it all, pastor. No, he studied. He read. He was immersed in God's word. He soaked it up. It is no coincidence. It's not a mistake that we have a Bible that has been meticulously protected, copied, carefully overseen uh, its reproduction so that we have a Bible today that we can be confident in. It is the same Bible. It has the same message. Um, there are small changes and, and distinctions, but in its essence, it is the same message, the same truth from God that, that existed in the time of the New Testament. It's amazing. It's a miracle. People have challenged that. Many come against it, but the truth is it stands up to fair scrutiny because it is amazing. There's nothing else like it in the world that has as many copies and as, many, uh, as much work done and as careful work. We have the Word of God. Are we spending time in it? Uh, The general secretary of the Bible Society in Zimbabwe tried to give a New Testament to a very belligerent man. The man insisted that he would only use the Bible to roll cigarettes and smoke, and he goes, I'm not going to read it. So uh, the the general secretary said, listen, I understand that, but could you at least read the page before you roll it up uh, into a cigarette? And so the guy goes, all right, I will. So they separated ways. Fifteen years later, the uh, the story says they came back together. And uh, this, this man who had been given the Bible was now a believer and, in fact, an evangelist. And as he told his testimony to the audience, he said, I smoked Matthew, I smoked Mark, I smoked Luke, but when I got to John 3.16, I couldn't smoke anymore. Listen, uh, (laughs) the Word of God is alive, and it can change our lives. God wants to speak to us, and He will. It's not just a book. It's not just a human invention. It has, it, it's God's words. It's powerful. Are we engaging it on a daily basis? Are we building it into our lives so that we know it? So that we're able to interact with others and know the truth and know how to cut through the confusion that so much of our world has to speak the truth of what God has to say. We have that available to us. Jesus used that same resource. You and I have it as well. Last resource that we see from Jesus' life that is important in this regard to an effective ministry is he had relationships. Jesus was not a lone, uh, a lone wolf. He didn't go it alone. He wasn't out there, you know, on his own, traveling the countryside, doing his work. He involved others. He had a family. And we can see at times where those relationships had a little bit of rub to them. They weren't always as supportive as he might have wanted them to be. But ultimately, they were there for him. Uh, His family was there for him. His friends were there for him. And he leaned on those relationships. He did, even though he was God. (laughs) He was also a human being. And so he needed that interaction, that support. And so, uh, you know, he's hanging on the cross, and he says to John, this is your mother, you know. And he said to his mom, Mary, this is your son. He was able to pass off that important relationship. He cared about his mother being cared for. And so he was able to see that happen because he had relationships that were deep. I'm asking you guys to consider joining a life group, to getting into a circle and getting connected with others because I know how important it is. I know it's essential to your development and growth. If you're going to see your life change, if you're going to see yourself grow and transform to experience the life that Jesus 
is calling you to. You got to be in relationships with others. You got to be moving with others. It's the only way it's going to happen. Doing it on your own just doesn't work. It just is not possible. And so it's so important. Um, and, and you don't know what's coming and what's going to happen tomorrow. Um, uh, when Mary and I lived in Denver, we were part of a church that did a fall uh, campaign like this, and we started a life group, a new small group, and we had a bunch of people join, and one of them was uh, a gal named Cynthia. Cynthia was married. She had two little girls. Her husband was not going to church. He wasn't uh, into that, and so uh, he, didn't, he didn't, you know, she was free to do whatever she wanted, but he just wasn't, it wasn't his thing. And so she started coming was a part of our group, got to know people. We went through a, a couple of different studies and she started to grow. I got the opportunity to baptize her, uh, you know, uh, in church one Sunday and she was just growing and, and seeing God move. And then uh, Cynthia, after a couple years of being in our group, she got a tough diagnosis. Uh, she was diagnosed with cancer and she began that battle. And of course, as a group, we were able to come around her and support her. And, and she had a lot of friends now in the church that were believers. And so we prayed with her and, and, uh, and we're there for her and, and we're, we're hopeful that she would be healed. But God didn't see fit to do that. It's not what happened for her. Uh, Cynthia ended up passing away, and she left, uh, you know, her two little girls. It was, it, it's tragic. But I want to tell you, at her funeral, her mom put her trust in Christ. Her family saw the importance of following Jesus, and they didn't see, hey, God didn't meet Cynthia. He didn't answer uh, our prayers, but in fact, God was with her and saw her through that ordeal and, and will continue to be there for her family because of this church that she became a part of. And so um, uh, I don't know, guys, what's coming tomorrow in your life. I'm not saying there's going to be tragedy and calamity. I don't know that. It's not my point. My point is that you need relationships. You need to have a support group. And so, again, I just want to encourage you. Take the risk. Take the chance to step into signing up uh, to a life group and being a part of that. So often, as I interact with people, again, this idea of serving and ministering, there's a sense of... uh, not having the ability, not being able to do it. And oftentimes we create reasons as to why we can't do what Jesus has called us to. There was an elderly widow restricted in her activities, essentially homebound, but she was still eager to serve Christ. After praying about it, she realized that she could bring blessing to other people by playing the piano, something that she knew how to do and had done her whole life. And so the next day she placed an ad in the Oakland Tribune, the town she lived in. She said this, pianist will play hymns by phone daily for those who are sick and despondent. The service is free. The notice included a number to dial. When people called this uh, lady, she would ask them, what hymn would you like to hear? Within a few months of her playing, she had brought cheer to several hundred people, many of them freely poured out their hearts to her and she was able to minister to them on the phone. Listen, I don't know what your situation is. I don't know what reasoning you've listened to and believed as to why you couldn't serve others and make an investment in the lives of others. But I want to assure you that those are false. Those are lies. And there is a need for you to step into, once again, the calling of Jesus on your life. What chair are you in? What chair do you need to move towards? Jesus is calling you to invest in others, to be a part of his work, to see the world changed. God, we thank you so much for your calling on our lives. Thank you for loving us and caring about us and pursuing us, even when we don't know you, even when we're not sure if you exist, even when we're not sure if you love us, even, the, even when we've been through pain and hurt, uh, even when we've gotten disillusioned. 
in our faith, even when we've gotten discouraged, when we've believed the lies of the enemy, you just keep after us, Father. Your love is overwhelming. And it it continues to cause you to pursue us. Father, I pray that you would give us a sense of your calling once again. That each one of us in this church would, in a renewed way, connect with your calling to us. To come and be a part of what you're doing. I pray these things in Jesus' name.